This podcast was created on Messy. Create your own show today at Messy.fm. All I can control is, is what I do is catch the team, and I do that the best of my ability. Ah, uh, it's rugby round the banner, episode 158, mate. Hey. Hi, Sheddies. It's me, Eddie Stevens. Um, the time is irrelevant. Uh, whether or not I'm talking about my time or your time is irrelevant. I don't care. I'm too tired. I'm exhausted and I'm beat up. I feel old today again. It's funny, like, I found myself over the years, really for the past decade, every day I go, God, I really need to catch up on sleep. I'm so tired. I just feel beat up. I've only just realized that it's never going to stop. Like, it's just getting old, isn't it? I'm like, I'm never going to feel refreshed. I keep thinking, oh, I just need to get a bit more sleep. No, 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 no. I'm always going to feel like shit. But last night, it's my own fault. I feel extra bad today because I was up having sex all night. Now, I'm not bragging about that. I actually didn't even, I mean, it's nice to have sex, but I didn't really, all I was trying to do most of the night was get my girlfriend to give me a massage. Like that's, I realized last night that there's like a, all men have this like, um, like ratio of coming versus massage where we like both. But when the younger you are, the higher the priority the coming is and the lower the priority the massage is. And so the way it works is you will have men go to get a massage, right? But the reason they go in there is to get a hand job at the end of it, right? That's their happy ending. And that's the only reason they go there. They don't actually want the massage. It's nice. But really, they're just, it's foreplay so they can get that hand job um, and come. That's what they want to do. I used to be like that, but now I've completely flipped. Like my ratio, like now the massage is better for me than the orgasm. Like my idea of a happy ending now is after I come, trying to convince her to give me a foot massage or something. Like that's, that's my happy ending. And I'll pay extra, you know, I'm not going to expect it for free. Um, God, what was I going to say? Um, although I do actually, last night I did have sex and I did convince her to to massage me. And then I wanted the extra happy ending after I was just, I wanted to come again. So actually it's just a cycle, isn't it? Once you come, you want that massage. And then once you get the massage, you get worked up and want to come again. It's all, uh, it, on the subject of massages, by the way, the happy ending, if you've ever done, I've never done that. I've never gone and, gone and gotten a massage and had it result in a happy ending, but I've always wanted it to. I've always thought that would be the best ending. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I don't understand why it's frowned upon, um, or why it's such a, um, what's the word? Christ, my brain. You know what I'm trying to say. Why it's socially unacceptable to, um, so deviant to get a, a hand job at the end of a massage. All that you are doing when you get a massage is having someone rub parts of your body and make you go, oh, fuck, yeah. It's almost like coming at the end of it is the natural conclusion. Like, to me, it's almost like, is it even a real, full, good massage if you don't come at the end? I would argue that a massage that ends in an orgasm is really just a fucking good massage. In fact... Anything that ends in me orgasming is just a really good version of that thing. Could be like even something that's unplanned. I've got to go to the dentist 
on the 8th. When's that? Thursday, I think. Is it this Thursday or next Thursday? Fuck, I don't know. But anyway, I hate going to the, de- the dentist. But if I went there and it was a female dentist, sorry for being a homophobe, and she was hot. And then if she gave me a happy ending at the afterwards, I feel like, I mean, this sounds really obvious, but wouldn't that be a great dental experience? If you could just come, I feel like even my girlfriend wouldn't be annoyed with me if I came home and she's like, oh, how was the dentist? It was really good. I came at the end of it. She'd be like, holy shit, that's a great, that's a great dentist. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you come at the end of something, I'm going to come at the end of this podcast and it'll be a great podcast. And I suggest you do the same, but we've got to get cracking on, haven't we? There's all sorts of crazy news right now. Eddie's gone. Eddie's gone. Not me. I'm here forever. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but it is Rugby Rants Banter, episode 158, so let's go. great intro that was. Um, this is going to be a bit of a tricky podcast, I feel like, because I feel like this is such a um, big issue. I really should have got, if I'd have known it was going to happen, I would have ha- would have had a guest on, because I feel like it's something that you really need someone else to talk about. But I'm going to continue doing my insane batshit conversation with myself slash conversation with you. And uh, we'll see what happens. My God. Um, so Eddie Jones is out. Finally, it's what I wanted. It's what I said I wanted. Um, now that it's happened, I'm a bit scared. I'm a bit confused. Um, because I had a sit like, so I was watching what I do every week is I watch the premiership and I don't, um, look at any rugby results. Obviously I don't want those spoiled and I don't speak to anyone and I don't look at tweets from anyone. And I just try to avoid those results as best I can. But from little things I was noticing, because I somehow managed to get in little disagreements on Twitter anyway, because that's, I'm incorrigible. Um, I started seeing the news that Eddie Jones was fired. And I was under the impression that Steve Borthwick was 100% taken over because everyone has been talking about Steve Borthwick. But now, as I understand it, at the time that I'm recording this, um, 11.54 a.m., my time you know, do I really need to say it? You know, I'm talking about my time. I'm not going to mention someone else's time. Maybe I will one day just to freak you out. But um, as I'm speaking about it now, uh, I believe it's just Richard Cockrell is taking over as interim coach. How do we feel about that? Now, um, I don't know if you can tell, but <clears throat> I've actually moved some stuff around in my in my shed uh, so that the sound quality should be a little bit better. I felt like I was a little bit echoey. Uh, for a while there and now i've moved some sort some was basically a huge piece of sponge not like actual ocean sponge but like some it's an old mattress that i had in my shed (laughs) everything about if i describe the contents of my shed to you i sound every bit as mental as i clearly am from from you listening to the podcast right there's an old mattress here Uh, i think a cat pissed on it once and uh anyway um 
but I'm using that to uh, sort of absorb some sound, and I think it's going to sound better now. It was a bit too tinny and echoey before. Anyway, what was I saying? Richard Cockrell taking over. How do we feel about that? I have... I don't really give a shit. I think it's the right thing. Even if Richard Cockrell stays as coach until the World Cup, I think it's probably the right thing to do because I do think Eddie Jones needed to go. Um, I think that his performances were going down. You know what? More on that in a little bit, actually. Um, but I'm okay with Richard Cockrell. He would never have been my um, my choice. I w- I'm, I'm much more leaning towards Mark McCall or Steve Borthwick, you know? Um, but we'll see. It definitely seems that there's a lot of assumptions that Steve Borthwick will be taking over. Um, and I don't know, maybe I've missed something. I kind of, I finished watching the last match today in the premiership, the Bristol versus Leicester match, um, checked some Twitter stuff and immediately started recording. So I may have missed some news. I don't know. Do I really need to know what's going on to talk about it? I don't think so. But let's talk about Eddie Jones for a minute. Okay. Because I have, Eddie Jones has been pissing me off basically the well the vast majority of his tenure as England coach um and I think it was right to get rid of him but how will I was just thinking how will Eddie Jones be remembered generally by the English rugby um fans uh I think he'll be remembered fondly I think people will or at least people will remember him as a successful coach, despite how bad it was at the end. And statistically, he is a very successful, he's the most successful England coach. He is the highest ever win ratio of any England coach. But who would you guess has the second highest win ratio? Because you might assume it was Clive Woodward. You might go way back to Jeff Cook in the like 80s, 90s. Um, But no, it was actually Jeff Cook's... um, um, successor, Jack Rowell. Now, Jack Rowell, I would never look back at as a successful England coach. Uh, he, While he was in charge, England played some very boring rugby, but it was sort of a sign of the times, I suppose. That was the mid-90s. Uh, I remember he was the coach, if you didn't know, at the 95 World Cup in South Africa, where England were... Eh, it was kind of a, a transition period for English rugby. It was the dawn of professional rugby. So obviously there's going to be a massive change in everything around rugby after that. So, but anyway, my, my point is that if Jack Rowell is the second, he's only 1% lower. Now I'm sure he wasn't in charge for as long as Eddie Jones was, didn't play anywhere near as many matches. In fact, if I were more professional, I would have checked to see. But what I'm saying is... um statistics you know don't necessarily tell the whole picture and eddie jones started um his career with england with an i mean amazingly i think he won his first i think it's his first 17 matches in charge he won and it was incredible and I've, you've never seen someone come in and make as big of a difference because this is after England's worst ever World Cup, which we're not going to speak about. And um, I'll never stop being thankful. You know, I've had my issues with Eddie Jones, but I will never stop being thankful to him for how he led us to that three-test whitewash in Australia. After those twats, those Australian twats were making ads publishing ads where they laughed, literally laughed at our chances of winning, laughed at our team. And then Eddie Jones goes over there, talks all t- sorts of smack, and we spank them. Three test series, 
whitewash. It was phenomenal. And it kind of set the foundations. I should, again, I should probably check our record against Australia since then, but I feel like it set our foundations for sort of for English rugby dominance over Australia. Up until that point, I feel like Australia had a psychological advantage over us. Um, but after that, we um, seem to always beat them. I'm sure we've lost to them recently now that I've said that. But anyway, uh, that was a long time ago. Okay, that's the thing. So I love that that happened. 17 um, wins in a row when you take over means you're a good coach. There's no way around that. But as I said, that was a very long time ago. And yes, he led us to a World Cup final in 2019. Well, guess what? So did Brian Ashton. Do you remember Brian Ashton? It's just like the thing with Jack Rowell. It's like, okay, there's a 1% difference in their win ratios between Eddie Jones and Jack Rowell. One people think is, some people think is the greatest coach ever. Um, and the other one is Jack Rowell, right? And similarly, um, not many people look back at Brian Ashton as a great time in English rugby. Although he is well known, he has a great, um, he has a lot of respect from players about his coaching, but he was never good for England and I've never gotten over him. He coached Ireland for a little while and uh, it just, it, when I was a, I was probably about 13 or 14 and I remember him when Ireland was going to play England, him talking about, I don't know, he came across as a traitor to me, which I realize now is a little bit silly, but I'm, I haven't gotten over it. And um, also, Ireland was shit when Brian Ashton was their coach. And England was shit when Brian Ashton was their coach. And that's my point. We got to a World Cup final against all the odds. Nobody thought he should stay as coach after that. And I feel like Eddie Jones' thing, it's, not, it's nowhere near as bad. We were playing much better rugby. And in that World Cup, in the 2019 World Cup, yes, this is a subjective opinion, subjective comment, but... I don't think anyone was playing better rugby than England in the build-up to that final. And the performance we put in against New Zealand, no one could have beaten us that day. You know? Unless you subscribe to the idea that, you know, our style of play is better suited to beating New Zealand than South Africa, which would make a hell of a lot of fucking sense. But the bottom line is, that World Cup final that we got to, that everyone's so proud of, we were abysmal. We were embarrassing. It was... I, I, I remember that World Cup as a, as a fucking nightmare. I don't remember it as a, as a high point in English rugby. Um, so my feelings about Eddie Jones are, you know, forget about the fucking, um, take the sentimentality out of it. Take the, um, there's no need to get personal about it. Just look at the facts. This is the problem though. People say some really dumb shit on social media. And what I'm really fed up with is the people saying that some people are taking it too far with a, with their comments on Eddie Jones, which undoubtedly some people are. I mean, some people are probably wishing death on him for no reason. But there's people on, on social media, mainly Twitter, who will get angry with you for saying Eddie Jones shouldn't be there. Um, he's been terrible. It's embarrassing. He needs to go. Some people will defend him and act like you don't have a right to criticize him. First of all, you don't have a right to criticize him because you're not an international head coach, which is fucking absurd. What is the point? Let's never discuss rugby then. 
if we're not allowed to question i talked about this on a previous podcast i won't go into it in too in too, in too much detail but if you're not allowed to to um disagree with a professional head coach and question their methods then let's just never discuss rugby let's not even watch it in fact if i couldn't if i was never allowed to talk about it or crit- or criticize players or coaches i wouldn't want to watch it and 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 look i've never you know i i, I you know i was going to say i've never said anything too personal about eddie jones but i probably wished death on him on this podcast at some point but you know i get carried away and you know he can handle it but that kind of leads me to the point i was going to going to make eddie jones better be able to handle significant criticism because he is not afraid to dish it out you know um and now that leads me to a disagreement i had on twitter that i want to talk about i had a disagreement with a couple of twitter accounts including one with my uh, fantasy rugby draft commissioner brother frank from the brother from the rugby brethren um it was we were discussing uh, a column written by um england legend and greatest ever fullback mike fucking brown yes i'm biased but honestly <laughs> in my biased opinion i'm not being biased when i say this what his article he basically just criticizes eddie jones's um abrasive manner and the volatile team environment that he creates um and what i notice is that some people i forget the the main account that did it um somebody somebody was uh very happy to just write off mike fucking brown's comments as just sour grapes right so then i pointed out that this opinion piece which is all it was by mike fucking brown was nothing new i've heard it before we've all heard it before okay and now, at least I thought we'd all... I, I was under the impression that this is very common knowledge. Uh, regardless of whether or not you think he's the right man for England, I think it's pretty well documented how hard Eddie Jones is to deal with, isn't it? Like, I thought it was... Everyone knows that. Eddie Jones is a very abrasive man. Look at the way he talks to the media. Look at how he bullied Michael Checker during our whitewash tour of Australia, which, don't get me wrong, I did love it because Checker is a massive twat. And it helped us win. But then look at the way his former backroom staff, it's always former. You can't just say it's sour grapes because nobody working with him is going to criticize him. I mean, come on. But plenty of um, former backroom staff and players have talked about him in the same way that Mike fucking Brown was. Now, I said in a tweet that countless, I quote, countless players and backroom staff had mirrored mike fucking brown's sentiment and brother frank called me out which he's entitled to do and asked which players now when he asked me that off the top of my head all i could think of was mike fucking brown who just wrote it and danny cipriani who's been fairly outspoken and i remember Dellen armitage not Dellen armitage what the fuck did i say Dellen armitage for um luther burrell uh it's not racism <laughs> Anyway, um, those are the only ones I could think of, but there have been more and there have been mainly what I'm thinking of is over the, you know, how long was he in charge? I don't even remember. Is it 10 years, seven years, 17 years, 50? I don't know. But during that time, there have been 
countless, and I, and I mean literally countless because I can't count them. I'm not going to go back and find every single documented example of this happening, but there have been countless anonymous player accounts of Eddie Jones being very difficult to work with. So I, I kind of got sidetracked there. I'm not sure why I started ranting about that. Well, I guess it's like, this is literally why, never mind the fact, okay, he can be as difficult as he wants. He can be as much of a prick as he wants to be. Like I said, when he went to Australia and we got the whitewash, he was a massive bastard. He literally bullied Michael Checker. It was actually kind of uncomfortable, but we loved it because it got results. But if you're not getting results, which we haven't, we've had, you know, you talk about Eddie Jones's uh, win ratio being the best of any England coach. Don't we have the worst ever Six Nations results under him? Um, and the thing is, I think Eddie Jones, back to my main point originally was how will he be remembered by the English rugby public? I think he will be remembered as a great coach, but his last few years were fucking atrocious. I mean, atrocious. Um, unforgivably so. So, you know, some people will just be adamant forever that Eddie Jones had a master plan, like somehow they know this and that he, and he was going to peak for a world cup. Matt Gitto, former player who always speaks highly of him, although has some pretty shocking stories about Eddie Jones being a bastard that I've heard him tell. He, Matt Gitto said it was a terrible idea to get rid of Eddie Jones because he's the master of peaking for world cups. Well, that's all well and good. And he may be right. And he's entitled to his opinion, but I don't think we were going to peak for this world cup. I would have bet money that we were going to perform badly in the world cup. Um, and to be honest with you, what I'm concerned with now is that whoever's in charge, when England go out in the quarterfinals, you know, or where, where wherever they're going to try and use that as some kind of, proof that, that that they were wrong to get rid of Eddie Jones. I don't think anybody, anybody thinks that England have a very realistic chance of winning the World Cup with or without Eddie Jones. And that's the problem. I just think if we're going to win a World Cup this soon to a World Cup uh, off the back of the performances we've been putting in, it's going to take a fucking miracle. You may as well do something drastic and radical. You may as well try somebody else because I don't want to, st- I'd, I'd rather, it's kind of like, you know, all you fuckers that were upset with England kicking the ball out to get the draw against New Zealand. This is almost like the same thing. It's like sticking with Eddie Jones is like kicking the ball out, playing it safe. I'd rather we just fucking go for it and try and create something exciting in the brief period that we have between now and the world cup um but you know we'll see what happens because presumably maybe what they're going to do is have richard cockrell in as an interim coach and if england keeps winning they'll just stick with it but most likely they're going to bring in a big name like um steve borthwick or maybe even what's his face razor fucking hate that nickname for some reason um can't even remember his real name. I think that'd be a really bad idea to bring someone from outside of the premiership. But anyway, we'll see. We'll wait and see what happens. And then we'll talk about it more. Okay. Um, I think I've said everything I want to say, though, about the Eddie Jones situation. I'm glad he's gone. To be honest, it should have been sooner. He's got nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing ro- like 
basically, if you're an if you're a professional coach, your your job lasts until you're fired nowadays. That's basically how it works. I don't think any coach is able to just keep winning and winning and winning and winning and winning and and not have any issues and just eventually retire. I mean, it, it does happen, obviously. So what I've said is complete bullshit. But if you're Eddie Jones, he's not got any plans to retire anytime soon. And uh, I don't think there's any shame in getting fired um, after a bad couple years um, when you're the highest paid, presumably highest paid international coach in the world. Anyway, more on that next week, I expect, assuming that the story develops a little bit. Oh, can't wait to hear the amount of horrible shit Eddie Jones is going to be talking about English rugby in the future. Just, just stay tuned for that. He's going to like, he's not England coach anymore, but we'll still have an Eddie versus Eddie at some point. Cause I know he's going to say something awful. Let's talk about the premiership that no one really gives a fuck about except me. I still enjoy watching it and every match I watched. Yes. There's only four matches. Yes. Most of the results mean nothing. Yes. Fantasy rugby has been ruined because of the two teams dissolving, but all of these matches were entertaining. Let's start with Harlequins versus Bath. There was an early Alex Dombrandt try, which is important because it is really important for Alex Dombrandt to put in some big performances now leading up into the Six Nations because number eight is looking like a problem position for England. You know, in fact, the back row is a bit weird right now. We don't have a clear choice of who to start at number eight. And when it comes to flankers, we're not sure who's starting where. Tom Curry pretty much is always there, but you've got people like, Jack Willis, who's still eligible for England, even though he's gone to France. Ben Earl has been horribly overlooked. And with a new coach in charge, Alex Dombrandt, all of these players have a shot, uh, not to mention Ted Hill. Because um, I think England, you know, when you look at the number eight situation, we've only got one sort of massive mountainous number eight in Billy Vinopola. And I don't think he deserves to be playing for England right now. Um, but so our other options are kind of lightweight, but I think England could easily afford to have a smaller number eight like Sam Simmons or dare I say it, Zach Mercer, not getting carried away, but he's an option, right? I think you could have a number eight like that or even Ben Earl if you have a juggernaut like Ted Hill at six. And by the way, I'd rather have someone like Ted Hill at, at blindside than a second row, you know, just because... Because very often what they'll do is they'll put a lightweight lock um, like, what's his name? Alex Coles. Um, I say he's lightweight. He might not be, but you know what I mean? He's not the most physical num um, second row out there. Um, they'll sometimes put them there because they're more athletic, but you end up just with a sort of a tall flanker. You don't necessarily need that. I know the line out comes into play, but. I think it would be much nicer to have, you know, the old Exeter Chiefs style. You got Dave Ewers at six, some maniac at seven, and then Sam Simmons at eight, and it works. So I could happily, um, I would be very happy to see a back row that had, say, Ted Hill at six, Tom Curry at seven, and Ben Earl at eight. Anyway, or Sam Simmons. Although I wasn't that impressed with Sam Simmons over the last few games. Um, I'll tell you who I was impressed with during the, the, the autumn tour was, uh, Joe Thokkanasinghe, someone who over the years, I haven't even been able to understand how he was in the England squad. Uh, but to Eddie Jones's credit, I see it now 
because um, he's been very difficult to play against in every match I've seen him in. And in this particular match against Quinns, he absolutely leaves uh, Andre Estehazen for dead, beats him on the outside. Um, and that was just pure speed, by the way. You know, people act like during the um, the Autumn Internationals, when you had Thokana Singer on one wing and Jack Knoll on the other, people were acting like England were missing pace on the wings. But they're making assumptions about Thokana Singer based on his size. Okay, Joe Thokana Singer is proper fast. I've heard multiple sources, um, countless accounts. Um, that he's lightning fast. But people see him as he's big, so they just assume that he can't be that quick. It's the same as when people assume that lightweight players are defensively uh, defensively weak, even when their stats say otherwise. I'm not going to go into detail. Um, you know what I noticed during this match as well is, um, for years, I was saying it didn't make sense when a team gets a penalty awarded, um usually a line out. Let's say you're a line out in the corner, right? Right by the try line. Very often if you get a penalty against you, um, the, the, the team that gets the penalty will retake the line out. And I've been saying for years that it makes more sense to just tap and go and set up the rack or the mall, which is because that's what a successful line out, what a successful line out ends up in anyway. Like why add the step of having to catch the line out throw, which could be fumbled or intercepted, I've been saying this for years, and then for a while, teams started doing it. I think it was last season or maybe the season before. Um, teams stopped um, kicking it into the corner when they were already in the corner and just tapped and went. Um, but this season, they seem to have reverted to sticking with the line out. They've gone back to doing that. And that's what Quinns did during this match on the Bath try line, and then they lost the ball. Um, and I've noticed in general, they, they that seems to have fallen out of fashion now, The the tap and go rather than kicking to the corner. Um, although I think Bristol uh, at one point, Ellis Genge tapped and went and it, and it worked. Um, let's see. Also in this match, Oscar Beard looks very explosive and dangerous to Harlequins. Uh, I think he was playing in the centers in this match, wasn't he? Or was he on the wing? I don't know, but he looks very explosive, very dangerous. And so does his jaw. That is a massive chin and jaw. Like it's actually too big. It bothers me. It's, it's almost ironic with the name Beard. Like he, he is like his he he doesn't have a beard, but he has a giant beard area. He should probably grow a beard to cover it up. Um Nick David at Quinn's looking really dangerous again. As is Matt Gallagher. Um at wait, who's Matt Gallagher? Yeah, Bath. I was gonna say Saracens. I got confused because he used to be at Saracens, but Nick David looked great, Matt Gallagher looked great, and you know what? England, I don't know if I've mentioned this recently, but that we have so many exciting fullback options. We've got Gallagher, David, Carpenter, Carpenter at Sale, I fucking love. And that's in addition to, obviously, Freddie Stewart. You've got Max Malins and Elliot Daly playing really well. We've got a lot of good fullbacks. The only caveat being Freddie Stewart starts every game. But, you know, what if he gets injured? Who takes over? Um, it would be really nice to see a player like um, Carpenter from sale just really exciting brought in at least brought into the camp to sort of groom him for uh international rugby um uh in the bar team cameron redpath looked very physical in this match i didn't think he could do it first he uh he whacked don brandt and sent him flying and then uh later he rode a tackle 
uh, just uh, and offloaded beautifully to set up a try for Butt, the big uh, Bath winger. Um, I don't know. I have a feeling that Cameron Redpath is going to be injury prone, as are so many talented players. But he looks sometimes like a huge loss for England. Um, Quinn's had a lovely moment with Caden Murley, who people got really excited about Caden Murley recently, and it sort of seems to have fizzled out a little bit. But he had a gorgeous jinking run. I can't believe I just called it gorgeous. That was annoying. But he was defeating, uh, beating defenders, (laughs) defeating defenders all over the place. And then Ollie Lawrence, someone I just want to talk about because I still think he'd be great for England, comes and just fucking smashed him, absolutely smashed him. He had a fairly quiet game in this match, Ollie Lawrence, but he's still, he's got to be in the England squad. But there's some new, there's some new uh, contenders for the, for the 12 and 13 slot coming up. Um, but you know what? Really quickly, I know I'm talking about Quinns versus Bath, but I want to talk about Manu for a second because every time we talk about uh, center for England, England's center options, Manu is always a part of the conversation. I have been arguing for years that he's just going to get injured anyway. Um, but also, like, I was uh, scrolling through my uh, rugby Twitter group chat with the rugby brethren, uh, and it was just fucking pages and pages. It's just so much to go through. But I did notice people talking about the the issues at Centre for England, and somebody, and I can't remember who it was, uh, was bigging up Manu, saying how, how, how good he could be at 12 or 13. I can't remember. But they were using examples of um, how he looked next to Brad Barrett and Anthony Allen. I mean, talk about being in the past. How fuck it was that 10 a decade ago? Manu Tuolangi is nowhere near as good anymore. I wouldn't even have him in the squad. He's done. He can just fight. In fact, he should just go to France. Um, but anyway, back to the, to the Quinns match. Um, but still on the center topic, if Andre Esterhazen was English, he'd have solved a huge problem for us by now. And imagine Andre Esterhazen in an England 12 shirt. And they barely ever seem to want to use him at, uh, with South Africa. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. I feel like he's the best 12 in the world. Um, let's see. I'm looking at my notes now. Brilliant work by Thakana Singer to chase that penalty kick for touch that was kept in play in bizarre footballing fashion. Do you remember that moment? Because I don't. Um, it was a crazy end to the match though. Um, if you remember, I felt like Niall Annett broke away from the mall and the Quinns players never released him. So it should have been a penalty to Bath. Um, but as I said earlier, the better option. So, so, um, Bath had gotten a penalty in the corner and they went for the line out. I think the better option is to tap and go rather than, rather than kicking for touch and risking having your line out ball nicked. Um, but you know what? Fuck all that. It, you know, looking at that match overall, I think Quinns probably were a little bit better, so they probably got a fair result from that. I don't know what the final score was because for the entire match there was no clock and no score on the screen. Thanks, Peacock. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I have to use Peacock, the app in America. That's how we watch Premiership, um, and it's fine. It's just a bit weird. It does stupid shit like that. Um, now, one last note on this you can say what you like about joe marler most people that listen to this podcast hate joe marler i've never liked him and sources or a source uh, that would know tells me that in real life he is a prick but 
I love his post-match interviews now, but only because if you just stop getting annoyed with him and because he obviously he loves the attention, I feel like he's got more tolerable over time. Like as he's gotten older, he seems a little bit nicer and his post-match interviews are bordering on like having a chat with an escaped mental patient. It's just, I love it. Like he's got this insane distant look in his eye and he says the weirdest shit. I got, he's growing on me. I don't mind it. I, I, I like it when he gets man of the match. Um, he pointed out that they only give it to him because he can talk on camera. Uh, and actually, there's no fucking way he was man of the match in that game. But anyway, but no, I'm I'm enjoying him. Uh, moving on, because this is going to be a long podcast. How long am I? How long have I been talking for? Half an hour just on this main se- segment. It's going to be like an hour long podcast and we don't want it to be, do we? Gloucester versus Northampton. Um, oh, Dan Bigger recently of Northampton Saints had a pretty good interview with Jim Hamilton that I sh- you should probably listen to. I watched it on YouTube. But he made me think of something. He was talking about Wales and how they overachieve. And this is a thing that comes up all the time with regards to English rugby. There's this assumption that having a larger population or a larger player base means you should have higher-end talent. You should have more talented players than smaller rugby nations. But I think that's a flaw in logic because it, it would make sense if, you know, if you've got, say, a player base of 10,000 players, you're going to have way better athletes than someone who gets to pick from a player base of 100. Now, these are extreme examples, right? Because 100 people is not enough to get those extreme... You could have 100 people, 100 random people, and... None of them could be, you know, very few of them would be athletes at all. But we're talking about, I'm, I'm one of my special retardations is that I cannot remember populations. Uh, I don't know how many people exist on earth. I don't know. I have no idea. Like if I, I'm not going to even estimate how many pe- people are playing rugby in England because I'll be so far off you'll make fun of me. But let's say just for fun that you've got 10 times as many rugby players in England than in Wales right? You still have a shit ton of people in Wales. And if you take 10 times that many people, or let me try and rephrase this and explain it a little bit better. There's enough people playing rugby in Wales that you're going to get some exceptional athletes, right? And they're all very experienced. They all play a lot of rugby. You're going to get, it's not completely insane to get players like, well, I was going to say Lewis Reese Zammett. Of course, he's fucking English, really. So that would explain that. But you're going to get amazing Welsh players like you've had over the years because there's still a shit ton of people playing rugby there. If you take 10 times as many players, yes, you'll have more depth, but you're not going to have like players that are way bigger, way stronger, way faster. Humans can only get so big, so strong, so fast. And you can only have so many genetic freaks. I think that some people get confused and they think because we have so many people playing in England, you're going to have like world-class, beyond world-class, just the most incredible specimens who have ever lived. And the reality is if you take the top, you know, 10% of players from either of those pools, the, the whoever's playing rugby in a smaller rugby nation and compare it to England, 
you're going to have similar levels of ability. It's just that there's going to be way more of those players in England. But the point is, and I'm sorry if I'm rambling and this has taken too long, but I think it's important. It's a mistake to assume that England should just be smashing everyone all the time or that our players should all be way better than the smaller nations players. That's not true. They should be fairly similar. The only way it should work in England's advantage is we're better able to handle injuries. And I think that's true. You very rarely see England lose or play badly and go, oh, well, of course we lost. We had all these players out injured. We don't really use that as an excuse, whereas Wales can use that as an excuse when they're, you know, missing some of their best players. I just got totally sidetracked, but whatever. I'll tell you what depressed the shit out of me. Um, it was George Skivington's birthday. That doesn't make me sad. I don't hate George Skivington. But, you know, do you know how old George Skivington is? He just turned 40. That's too young to be a fucking director of rugby or whatever the hell he's called. And I'm angry and I hate him because um, I'm older. Um Gloucester scored, uh, first of all, Gloucester scored some amazing rugby in this, and they scored a beautiful tri- team try. It was finished by Jack Singleton, but the initial break was made by Reese Zammett, who I talked about earlier. And then there was this lovely Harlem Globetrotters skills by the Gloucester t- team. Um, they were out Northampton in Northampton, is how I would describe it. Um, and it was interesting because I think George Skivington, if it wasn't George Skivington, it was someone else within the Gloucester coaching staffs, referred to Northampton's attack as the best in the league. Now, maybe it statistically is. I don't know. I haven't checked because why should I? Why would I? I don't need to prove anything to you. But I'll tell you what. Regardless, we know that Northampton Northampton has a really good attack. But honestly, Gloucester looked every bit as effective with the ball in hand as Saints in this match. Um, some of the match was bordering on chaos, though, I'll say. Um... I think I'm looking at my notes now. In the 15th minute, it was Rapava Ruskin, who had an immense game, by the way. Like, he was brought into the England squad recently. This is just one match, but I've always quite liked Rapava Ruskin. The only issue I have is, is he a loose head or is he a tight head? Because I think he was brought in to cover tight head, but I only ever see him playing loose head. And we got a shit ton of good loose heads. But um, he had a lovely break. And then there was miscommunication with Carreras. And the ball got lost. And then uh, Paul Hill reminded us of what a mobile threat he can be with a lovely powerful run and a nice offload and that ends in a great Tommy Freeman try and both teams were doing everything they can to entertain the crowd no doubt pissing off a lot of people who hate to see this kind of free-flowing rugby but I love it and then uh, Tommy Freeman scored another try shortly after his first Tommy Freeman great player um but you know, Saints have an amazing attack, as we uh, an amazing attack, as we talked about. But they need to find a way to have a more competitive competitive scrum because it will and has literally cost them games. You know, when your scrum is being taken apart as easily as Gloucester managed to do to Saints, you're fucked. Um, and what is it with these Argentinians that are the best players on earth? Santiago Carreras fucking embarrassed the Saints' defense. He was playing in his international position of fly half um, scored a lovely, lovely try. Although saints defense is terrible too. They did a few things wrong. Uh, Finn Smith rushed up way too quick, takes himself out of the game. Rory Hutchinson slipped. So that's not really his fault. But if you watch for Santiago Carreras's little individual try, Rory Hutchinson kind of slips and then he's not able to get across. And then Tommy Freeman is just totally caught in no man's land. But 
fuck me, players like Santiago Carreras and is it Mateo Carreras at Newcastle? Um, the two Carreras uh, are amazing. Um, the, the referee pissed me off in this match. I don't know if it's worth talking about, but I'm going to. It was Ian Tempest, I think. Apologies to him if it wasn't. Whoever was refereeing, at one point, uh, he called a pass forward from Proctor when Saints had a good attack. He immediately blew up, and it didn't look forward in real time or in replays, and he wasn't even in line to see the pass. So it was really weird. Why did he feel he should intervene rather than letting it play out and then asking the TMO? It was fucking mental. I've never seen it before. Like, he's nowhere near positioned to make that call. And anything could have happened. It really pissed me off. As a terrible Saints fan, that pissed me off. Moving on. London Irish versus Newcastle. Um, this was a great matchup because we had the two, in my opinion, last week I said this, the two best wing combos in the premiership. We've got Hassel Collins and Loder for London Irish, who last week I said were probably the best wing combo in the premiership. And then Radwan and Carreras, the Newcastle going up against each other. And um, to be honest with you, if anything, Newcastle's wings looked like the better combo, which is amazing because um, for a lot of the game, they were not getting as much good ball um, early on in the match, Ben Loder, who I love, uh, stepped Carreras very nicely. Um, And that was one point for him. But then shortly after Carreras had his revenge, he scored in the corner after a jinking run and a long floated pass from Radwan. And then later Carreras beats uh, Loder to a high ball right on the try line, stopping a definite try. It was a defensive position. Um, Carreras is... um, He's not just the best winger in the Premiership. He might be the best player in the Premiership this season. Uh, he, in terms of his influence on games. Um, and I, as I say, I would say Newcastle firmly won this winger's head-to-head that I've created in my head. Um, but you know what? <laughs> Radwan didn't really do that much. It's just that Mateo Carreras may well, as I say, be the best player in the Premiership. So um, he was immense both in attack and... And defense. That's what's interesting. Um, although, to be fair, I'm just thinking about this now. Hassel Collins, Carreras and Hassel Collins looked like the two best wingers in this match. I really like Hassel Collins. Um, I'm looking through my notes. In the last quarter of the match, Newcastle were camped on the try line, trying again and again to pick and go there, get go their way to a try that's poorly written um oh i remember this now yeah 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 they kept picking and going they were desperate to score they camped on the uh, london irish try line and they're just picking and going picking and going picking and going how are you going to do that you know they eventually p- uh, conceded a penalty by the way which effectively cost them the match how are you going to do that when you've got Carreras and radwan on the wings you know Carreras and radwan are essentially identical. They're like two clones on the wings. They look very similar in terms of their size and speed and everything. I'd say Carreras is just a little bit better defensively and possibly has a slightly higher work rate. But other than other than that, they're very similar. The final score did not reflect the whole match, by the way. I don't remember what it was, but it looked, was quite a lot to not that much. But um, if you didn't see it, you need to know Newcastle were pushing them the entire 80 minutes, but London Irish were able to generally, you know, it's the usual story. London Irish converted their opportunities and Newcastle left a lot of points out on the field. 
Um, that is um, consistently the difference, isn't it, between the good teams and the bad teams in the Premiership? Sometimes you watch a team like um, like Bristol is the perfect example. They're bottom of the league, but I've been in, they, they've played this great rugby, but they're just unable to um, convert all their. They did it. Uh, I'll get into that right now. They they also did not convert all their opportunities. Um, so Bristol versus Leicester, Randrandra back after an age out injured, scores within five minutes. But you know, it was that try was mostly made by Sam Lewis. Uh, he had a lovely little burst. Sam Lewis, by the way, one of the most underrated players in the Premiership. Uh, we saw one of the tries of the season, if not the try of the season, uh, from Charles Piatow. Um there was a filthy little reverse pass from Ellis Genge, uh, and then a lovely floated pass from Callum Sheedy, and then great power from Charles Piatow to get in at the corner. It was so nice, but that pass from Genge was insane. Ellis Genge consistently showing Kyle Sinclair that you can throw lovely little passes and do all that fun little fancy stuff and still be a decent prop at the same time. Um... At halftime, the score was 23 to 12 to Leicester. And I was like, how the fuck did that happen? But then, you know what? Immediately in the second half, Dan Thomas, is it Dan Thomas? I think that's his name, charged down a kick and got Bristol like right on the Leicester try line. And they somehow failed to score. If you can't score from that with the fractured defense uh, right on the try line, all they had to do was spin it wide. They didn't do it. If you can't score from that, you ain't winning these matches. But also, Bristol were getting penalized out of the game, something Pat Lamb was getting rather salty about, uh, as he tends to do. I didn't notice any calls going horribly against them. I didn't see any calls that I strongly disagreed with, disagreed with to be honest. Um, interesting, uh, notable, uh, what am I trying to say? Interesting to see that Leicester's entire backline were England internationals. You've got to love that if you're an England fan. I love seeing that. It's I've, I've mentioned this before. I remember when Harlequins once put out an entire 15 that was England um, eligible. That's what I want to see more of. But um, yeah, every single one of them has played for England. And then Ben Youngs goes off and um, Jack Van Portfleet comes on, another England international. Um and while we're on the subject, those centres, I'd be very happy with that centre combination uh, for England, wouldn't you? With um, Porter and... Fuck, what's his name? I've got shit tons of notes here, and I haven't got one note of the fucking England centre who just came back. I'm going to Google it. This is ridiculous. You know, it's just a brain fart. I have these brain farts. Let's see. Uh... Let's just look at the match, Leicester against Bristol. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, comes back in, first game back, as far as I'm aware, and looked great. Let's see. His name is... Didn't he score a try? Let's see. Where are the scores? It doesn't show the scores. Okay, it's Porter. No. Dan Kelly, Jesus Christ. But yeah, I'm sorry about that. But Porter and Kelly would be a lovely combo for England, wouldn't it? And then you can have uh, Ollie Lawrence in there. Um, Joe Marchand just went to France, and I don't believe he is now eligible for England because I think the only only reason that uh, players like Jack 
Jack, uh, what am I trying to say? Jack Willis. Um, I think the only reason he's eligible is because of what happened with Wasps. There's like special rules for him. But um, anyway, it's good to see Dan Kelly back and hopefully he can force his way into an England shirt. Um, you got to think if Steve Borthwick takes over as coach, there's a good chance that'll happen. Uh, let me get back to my notes. Oh yeah. Bristol. How are they bottom of the league? It just blows my mind. And they came back to draw to, they drew this game. It was a tie. Um, against the, the 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 league champions, and every time I see Pr- Bristol play, they look good. I think the but they're bottom of the league. They keep losing. I think the uh, the obvious problem for Bristol that we're all thinking about is that they're missing little Harry Randall. How are you going to win games when you don't have little Harry Randall running with his candle? You can't. You can't. You can't. Um, now, I know that Callum Sheedy is playing brilliantly right now but I do sort of feel like it reflects badly on you as a coach like Pat Pat Lamb when you're not selecting AJ McGinty. I feel like he's so fucking good. He has to be starting every week, you know, but then he did miss the uh, match winning penalty, which would have, I was about to say he missed the match winning penalty that would have won Bristol. The match is redundant. Um, I think Callum Sheedy, if he had been on, he gets that kick. So Maybe they're doing the right thing. I don't know. I, oh, holy shit. I just saw a note. Yeah. I talked about Dave Ulred last week, Bristol's kicking coach. Remember the one that he was like Johnny Wilkinson's personal kicking aide for a long time. And this week I saw him and he's old as shit now. God, life is horrible. Like it, you ever see like, um, it's usually children that do this. You ever see like a friend and they got a kid who's like two years old and then you don't, you don't see him for five years and you think that the kid is still going to be a little toddler. You just can't believe that he would be, he or she would now be seven. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes you see them when they're like five and then a decade goes by, but it flies by and then they're 15. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? Stop making me get old by turning from a child into a fucking young man or a young woman. Um, this was the, the opposite where the last time I saw Dave Ulred would have been at the 2003 World Cup. Um, not in person, but just like video and photos of him with the team. So he must've been about 50 in his fifties at that point. Um, that's obviously 20 years ago now. So now he's in his seventies. So he's, he doesn't look bad for his age, but it was a shock. I wasn't prepared to see that. And, um, it's left a nasty taste in my mouth. I'm going to end this podcast on that note. Um, do me a favor, remind me. See, I was about to say, remind me if you uh, weren't able to listen to this on Apple Podcasts. That's how stupid I am. I'm going to try and make sure that all platforms have Rugby Rant to Banter available. Please follow me on Twitter, at Eddie Stevens, with an extra S at the end. F- don't follow at Ranter Rugby or whatever it is. I don't bother using that. Um, but follow me on Instagram, uh, at Eddie Stevens Massive. Or is it just Eddie Massive? Eddie Stevens Massive. I think that's right. Fucking hell. I don't care. Um, I'll be back next week, even though there's no premiership rugby, but hopefully there's been some, some juicy gossip about England's coaching situation. So we'll, we'll discuss that later. Now you go about your day, go and uh, you can, you can come now. Yo